One of the things I find most fascinating about Waiting for Godot is the way Samuel Beckett plays with meaning. On one level, you could say the book is like sort of meaningless. Much of what the characters say seems to be totally absurd. But if you read carefully, I do think that there is also meaning to be made. That very often, the words that the characters say uh, are intended one way, or feel one way, but can be read a different way, can be read in a more meaningful way. So, uh, a simple, straightforward example of that is, of course, the very first line of the show. When the show opens, we see Vladimir and Estragon, who are like these sort of vagabond, homeless characters, and Estragon is struggling with his boot, trying to get his boot, the boot off his foot, and he says, nothing to be done. And, of course, on one level, uh, this is a, a statement of fact. This is a statement of exasperation. Uh, Estragon feels towards uh, his boot, unable to get the boot off his foot. But, of course, this is also the tonal center, the fun- foundational exclamation of the entire show. This sense of being trapped, something which is inescapable, a reality which is inscrutable, a landscape which is simultaneously confining and infinite. And so if there's one tone, if there's one expression that perfectly characterizes Waiting for Godot, it's this deep sense of nothing to be done. There are, of course, many ways to read any book, and there are many ways to read Waiting for Godot, but uh, a reading which resonates with me is to think about what is the aspect of life, what is the aspect of human existence, of human consciousness, which is most foundational and most permanent. So what do I mean by that? I mean, subtract from my life all the experiences, all the occurrences and arisings that are ephemeral, that are temporary. So anything that is sort of the contingent presence within my awareness, whatever happens to be in my field of view at this moment, we subtract all that because that's these, those things come and go. Anything which is sort of the story about my life, the story I tell myself about, you know, where I was born, where I was going, what I'm working on, what the, you know, current project is, what the next milestone is, subtract all that and ask, and ask myself, what's permanent? What, what follows me throughout my life in a way which is unchanging, in a way which is, like I said, foundational and essential and basic to what it means to be me, to what it means to be human, to what it means to have experience in this world? And I, I find uh, a kind of landscape, a kind of internal landscape, uh, a landscape of the mind, you might say. And again, this is a landscape which, which is only really accessible uh, in moments of quiet, perhaps, in moments of, of uh, no distraction, you might say in moments of waiting. And that landscape, that internal landscape that seems always to be there, that stage of in which the play of consciousness and the play of uh, the story of a life unfurls and unfolds, uh, has a kind of drabness to it, a kind of bleakness, a kind of emptiness, you might say. And I think much of life, much of my own life, for example, is spent trying to avoid looking at that landscape, trying to avoid the void, you might say, trying to avoid the emptiness uh, that, that can potentially be found The emptiness is an emptiness of meaninglessness. It's an emptiness of purposelessness. It's an emptiness of, you know, what am I doing here? Why do I exist? Why do I exist in this body? What is the point of all this? Why is there something rather than nothing? In the beginning of Act 2, 
Vladimir and Estragon are conversing again, and they're trying to figure out where they were yesterday. That's like a big theme in the book. Uh, what happened previously? And uh, Vladimir and Estragon are debating. Vladimir says, we were here yesterday. Estragon says, I tell you, we weren't here yesterday. It's another one of your nightmares. And so Vladimir says, and where were we yesterday according to you? Estragon says, how would I know? In another compartment. There's no lack of void. End quote. And for me, that word uh, is really critical in, in the way I tend to read Waiting for Godot. It's a sort of appearing into the void. There's no lack of void. There's this hole, this emptiness at the center of existence that we so often try to avoid. We try to look away from. And this play for me is about sort of peering into that void, peering into the absurdity of the human drama. In Act 1, Vladimir and Estragon meet two characters, Pozo and Lucky. Pozo is this kind of like a slave driver who's you know, driving the slave Lucky. And they have a question for Pozo. They ask him, uh, you know, why is Lucky carrying the bags still? Why doesn't he put down his bags? And Pozo is finally getting ready to answer this question that he's being, that's being posed to him. But before he can answer, he needs uh, all eyes to be on him. You know, he says, uh, Pozo says, good, is everybody ready? Is everybody looking at me? Um, talking to Lucky, will you look at me, pig? And then he says, you know, I'm ready. Is everybody listening? Is everybody ready? And then he concludes, I don't like talking in a vacuum. End quote. And there's this, this anxiety here around that vacuum, around that emptiness. Um, who's listening? You know, who are we talking to? Within this context, certain questions arise. Uh, some questions we've already formulated, such as, why, you know, why is existence, why is there this apparent consciousness? Why does the world exist? Why am I me and not someone else? But a similar question, a kind of parallel question, is what do we owe other people? What do we owe other consciousnesses? Um, on some level, it's easy to say, you know, uh, sure, we should you know, be ethical, we should be moral, we should be empathetic, we should take care of people in need. Um, and that's all well and good. But, but how far do you take that? And more generally, these get to the heart of the question of how do we think about other people? How do we think about other consciousnesses? How do we think about the luck that goes into, the happenstance that goes into why I'm myself and not someone else? Why I'm doing well and they're doing poorly, or vice versa, why I'm doing poorly and they're doing well. And Pozo, who himself is a slave driver of the more miserable and unfortunate lucky character, uh, he naturally has a lot of thoughts about this. Uh, Vladimir and Estragon, in the beginning of the play, are quite scandalized by the way Pozo is treating lucky. And they, they ask him, uh, you know, you're, you're saying you want to get rid of your, your slave Lucky? And, and Vladimir asks that question to Pozo with a hint of accusation in his voice. And Pozo responds, quote, Remark that I might just as well have been in his shoes and he in mine, if chance had not willed otherwise. To each one his due. End quote. And that's a classic Pozo answer. And the two parts of the answer uh, are potentially... Uh, intention with each other, almost self-contradictory. On the one hand, there's total randomness. I'm me, he's him, it could have been the other way around. I didn't pick being me, I didn't choose where I was born, I didn't choose this, this vessel of consciousness versus that vessel of consciousness. Uh, chance could have willed otherwise, but of course to each one his due. You know, That's the way things are. That's the, the way of the world. And, and this element of nothing to be done, this theme which occurs again and again, um, it is the way it is. You know, it's, it's, it's the mystery, almost. On the next page, Pozo uh, goes deeper into his philosophy 
of morality and, and consciousness, you might say. Uh, what happens here is that Lucky is crying, and then Estragon approaches Lucky, and then Lucky kicks Estragon, and now Estragon uh, is crying. His leg is now hurt. And so Pozo reflects on this. He says, quote, he stopped crying. To Estragon, you have replaced him as it were. The tears of the world are a constant quantity. For each one who begins to weep somewhere else, another stops. The same is true of the laugh. Ha ha ha. Let us not speak ill of our generation. It is not unhappier than its predecessors. Let us not speak well of it either. Let us not speak of it at all. It is true the population has increased. End quote. So, first of all, Pozo presents this sort of philosophy of like an averaging out of experience, of a kind of karmic conservation of pain and suffering and happiness, where when one person stops crying, another starts crying. Something is always conserved, and the same is true with the laugh. And, and it speaks back to this, uh, this tone, this sense that we get of really nothing to be done. There's no flexibility here. There's no room for improvement. So, in this vein of nothing to be done, he says, let us not speak ill of our generation. It is not any unhappier than his predecessors. Let us not speak well of it either. He says, over time as well, things are conserved. We're not better off. We're not worse off. And, and this philosophy starts to you know, undermine itself and unravel itself so that he's left with, let us not speak of it at all. There's nothing that can be said about our generation. Uh, it's like the sort of self-defeating line of thought. And at any time in Waiting for Godot, uh, a character makes any statement of intention. Uh, this is what I intend to do. It is immediately contradicted. So invariably, as soon as Pozo says, let us not speak of it at all, of course he is compelled to speak of it. He says, it is true the population has increased. Within this context of embodied consciousness, of being a human being in the landscape that Beckett gives us, there's this deep sense of being trapped. The sense of we have less autonomy, less insight than we think. We have less freedom than we think. And this comes across, this is portrayed throughout Waiting for Godot. But one very characteristic example is towards the end of Act 1, when finally Pozo decides that he and his slave Lucky need to be leaving, and we have this exchange. Estragon says, then adieu. And Pozo says, in response, adieu. And Vladimir, adieu. And Pozo, adieu. And then stage direction, silence, no one moves. Vladimir, adieu. Pozo, adieu. Estragon, adieu. Silence. Pozo, and thank you, Vladimir, thank you, Pozo, not at all. Estragon, yes, yes. Pozo, no, no. Vladimir, yes, yes. Estragon, no, no. Stage direction, silence. Then Pozo says, I don't seem to be able to depart. This sense of being trapped, of impotence, of the conflict between our sense of autonomy on the one hand and our actual capacities on the other hand, uh, is also echoed in the final line of the of the show um the book ends famously uh with you know vladimir saying well shall we go and estragon says yes let's go and then the final stage direction is they do not move and the curtain falls the waiting in waiting for godot has and can be understood in in more than one way but to me what it speaks to is the sense in which the present moment is never satisfying it seems to me that for most people, for most of the time, there's always something 
on the horizon that keeps us going. If we're not going to fall into a malaise or a depression, there has to be some sense of, you know, tomorrow will be better. The next milestone will bring relief. The next, the next vacation, the next promotion, the next degree, whatever the case may be, the next achievement will redeem or liberate my experience or the present moment or the next pleasure. But of course, it never works that way. Um, there's always this treadmill, this hedonic treadmill that we're on uh, where we're fearful of pain, of suffering, of illness, of loss, of tragedy, um, running towards pleasure. And on the one hand, you know, there's this problem of pain, you might say, the problem of evil, the fact that suffering feels so unnecessary and unjust. Um, but less talked about, but to me, uh, equally relevant is this, you know, the paradox of pleasure, uh, the sense that pleasure never satisfies. In Act 1, Pozo makes a big deal about his pipe smoking. He loves his pipe. Uh, he says, you know, he's not such a big pipe smoker. Too many pipes make his heart go pitter-pat. Uh, but he decides he's going to share a second pipe and linger with Vladimir and Estragon. And so he says, you know, wait a little longer. You'll never regret it. And Estragon says, we're in no hurry. Pozo says, now, talking about his pipe, his second pipe, the second is never so sweet as the first, I mean. But it's sweet just the same. End quote. And in those short words, in that short reflection, uh, I get uh, a sense of that hedonic treadmill. The sense of, you know, the second pleasure never satisfies like the first pleasure. But ultimately, we still chase the second pleasure. We fear the pains, and we chase the pleasures, and the pleasures ultimately end up leaving craters, holes of emptiness, holes of void, vacuum where that pleasure once was. And then it becomes this sort of impossible, futile task of chasing that original pleasure, um, which is no longer accessible. And so life is this treadmill of, you know, running from the pain and chasing the pleasure and never being able to avoid the pain and never being able to satiate those pleasures. At the end of Act 1, Vladimir encounters the boy. The boy is this very innocent, young character who has come to tell Vladimir and Estragon that Godot will not be coming today, but he'll be coming tomorrow. And Vladimir is eager to draw out from the boy as much as he can about this mysterious, elusive character, Godot, who they're waiting for. And so Vladimir asks him questions. He asks him about how he's treated and all these things. And then Vladimir finally says, all right, you may go. And the boy says, what am I to tell Mr. Godot, sir? Vladimir says, tell him. Tell him you saw us. You did see us, didn't you? And the boy says, yes, sir. And at the center of this book, in this landscape, in this barrenness, this empty compartment where nothing happens and the drama is absurd, there's this foundational anxiety of existence. Vladimir, in the back of his mind, perhaps suppressed, has this nagging worry of, is he even real? Is he not just a phantom or an illusion or a dream? And so he says, tell him you saw us. You did see us, didn't you? And I think in our own life, where a dream can start in the middle of some drama, can implant in us false memories about the past, and we could be totally unperturbed by the instability of a dream world. 
raises questions about the solidity of our own existence in the waking world as well. In the beginning of Act 2, Vladimir is singing a song. He sings, quote, A dog came in the kitchen and stole a crust of bread, then cooked up with a ladle and beat him till he was dead. Then all the dogs came running and dug the dog a tomb and wrote upon the tombstone for the eyes of dogs to come. A dog came in the kitchen and stole a crust of bread, then cooked up with a ladle and beat him till he was dead, etc., etc., in a loop. So it's one of these sort of looping ditties, these looping songs, where each stanza leads into the next in a recursive cycle, so that one stanza can restart you back up at the beginning. And of course, there are other uh, songs like this that we may know from our own childhoods, as the case may be. But I think the insight, the, the deeper meaning here, if there could be said to be such a thing, is that when we search for an explanation for existence, for the fact that we exist, that the world exists, that consciousness exists, uh, we're, we're at a, a, a major loss, where we're clearly in no position to be able to answer a question like that. It feels like a brute fact, but we can at least speculate about what the structure of such an answer might be. So we don't know why the world exists, why the universe exists, why anything exists, why we exist, why consciousness exists, but we can ask ourselves, if there was such an answer, what would it look like? What would the contours of an answer be? And um, it seems that any answer you would give, any explanation for the existence of the world, would perpetuate, precipitate, necessitate other questions of why that fact was true. So, you know, if you want to say it's God, so then why is there a God, so to speak? Who created God in this infinite regress? And if any answer is going to satisfy as much as any answer could potentially satisfy, uh, it would have to be some sort of self-justifying loop, you know, some, you know, so the, the world exists because of something and that exists because the world exists. It's some sort of, you know, recursive endless cycle of, you know, ex nihilo existence. Something pulled itself up, something pulling itself up by its own bootstraps, justifying itself. And so that, you know, all of life sort of fits into the cycle of, you know, the dog living his life and then he dies and then on his tombstone, all the other dogs tell the story of the dog living his life and he dies. And then on that tombstone, in this sort of infinite nesting of story within story, of dream within dream, hallucination within hallucination, false reality within false reality, a kind of a nesting doll situation of embedded worlds, embedded consciousnesses, embedded existences. Another recurring theme in Waiting for Godot is the theme of happiness, of the status, the condition of our internal experience. You know, how, how are we doing? How are the characters, Vladimir and Estragon, doing? On some level, their life is certainly very meager and harsh and difficult. They live in a meaningless universe, a cold, barren landscape. But, but what is that like exactly? Vladimir says to Estragon in the beginning of Act 2, you must be happy too, deep down, if you only knew it. Estragon says, happy about what? Vladimir, to be back with me again. Estragon, would you say so? Vladimir, say you are, even if it's not true. Estragon, what am I to say? Vladimir, say I am happy. Estragon, I am happy. Vladimir, so am I. Estragon, so am I. Vladimir, we are happy. Estragon, we are happy. What do we do now that we are happy? Vladimir, wait for Godot. End quote. And there's this real uh, instability, unknowability of our internal well-being. Are we happy? Are we not happy? If someone says they're happy, are they happy? If we say we're happy, does that make us happy? Even um, at the end of Act 1, 
Vladimir asks the boy, are you happy? And the boy says, I don't know, because it's, it's kind of an impossible question in this world. What does it even mean to be happy? And Vladimir responds, of course, you're as bad as myself. Like our own existence, which feels unstable, our own well-being also feels like you can't really put a finger on it. You can't really pin it down. The act of trying to define it, of trying to pin it down, changes it. In Act 2, Vladimir and Estragon are talking about potentially splitting up. And uh, Estragon says, the best thing would be to kill me like the other. And Vladimir says, what other? What other? And Estragon says, like billions of others. Vladimir says, to every man his little cross till he dies and is forgotten. And so again, there's a sense of the inexorability of death, of the finitude of life. And so Estragon says, in the meantime, meaning as long as we're not dead yet, let us try and converse calmly, since we are incapable of keeping silent. Vladimir, you're right. We're inexhaustible. Estragon, it's so we won't think. Vladimir, we have that excuse. Estragon, it's so we won't hear. Vladimir, we have our reasons. Estragon, all the dead voices. Vladimir, they make a noise like wings. Estragon, like leaves. Vladimir, like sand. Estragon, like leaves. Vladimir, they all speak at once. Estragon, each one to itself. Vladimir, rather they whisper. Estragon, they rustle. Vladimir, they murmur. Estragon, they rustle. Vladimir, what do they say? Estragon, they talk about their lives. Vladimir, to have lived is not enough for them. Estragon, they have to talk about it. Vladimir, to be dead is not enough for them. Estragon, it is not sufficient. Vladimir, they make a noise like feathers. Estragon, like leaves. Vladimir, like ashes. Estragon, like leaves. Vladimir, say something. Estragon, I'm trying. Vladimir, say anything at all. Estragon, what do we do now? Vladimir, wait for Godot. End quote. In this show, there's this deep anxiety that the characters feel around silence. There's this need to fill up the vacuum, fill up the empty space with words. The sense of, you know, we're, quote, we're incapable of keeping silent. And for me, I, I think about, you know, that internal monologue of the mind that accompanies me wherever I go, that's constantly running, constantly processing, constantly producing judgments, labeling, replaying the past, imagining the future. This incessant voice that will never be quiet, that's incapable of keeping silent. Um, and the sense that it's, uh, the idea of that silence is almost terrifying. It's like, you know, losing that voice, so to speak, would be to sort of stare into that void. In Act 2, Pozo and Lucky show up again, and they're in a much worse condition. Uh, Pozo is blind, he ends up falling, and he can't get up, and he's calling for help. Uh, Vladimir is now in this tough situation where he sort of wants to help, he sort of feels like it's his responsibility, his moral responsibility, but he's also paralyzed by himself, by his own thinking, by his own uh, processing of the situation that he can't really help. And all Vladimir wants to know is, did Pozo and Lucky come here yesterday? Because a, a major anxiety throughout the whole show for Vladimir is the sense of time. Is Does he exist? Does he exists within time. Did yesterday happen? Um, time feels so impossible, incomprehensible to Vladimir, and he wants to get a grip on it. And indeed, even in our own lives, you know, over the course of a life, we can only preserve just but the thinnest, thinnest thread of memory over the course of time, you know, of uh, what we could possibly retain from our lives. And of course, uh, human memory isn't recall of a machine where you know you write an image and you take that image back out of memory and, and render it again. Of course, memory in, for human beings is a very creative act. Every time we remember something, we 
construct that memory. We remember it differently and we create that memory. Um, and so memory indeed feels stable often, but it's not. Anything from the past that we recall only exists as an experience in the present. Um, in a sense, like Vladimir and Estragon, the past is completely close to us. We have no mechanism for distinguishing, distinguishing between a true memory and a false memory. And so in this compromised state where Pozo is on the ground and Vladimir is struggling with whether or not he's able to help, Pozo says that Lucky is dumb and Vladimir says, dumb since when? He wants to know, was this the same Pozo and Lucky as yesterday? So since when? And Pozo responds, have you not done tormenting me with your accursed time? It's abominable. When? When? One day, is that not enough for you? One day he went dumb. One day I went blind. One day we'll go deaf. One day we were born. One day we shall die. The same day, the same second. Is that not enough for you? They give birth astride of a grave. The light gleams an instant, then it's night once more. End quote. The sense that for Pozo, there is no time. There's just this present moment. Everything happens in the present moment. This ideas of succession, ideas of the story of our lives. It's just a story. All we have access to is a present moment. And that's it. And, and that trying to, to grapple with time, trying to put things in order, it's, it's abominable. He calls it accursed. It's, it's, it's impossible. All we have access to is just this moment. Everything happens in the present moment. You're born and you die and you go dumb and you go blind all in the one same present moment. Towards the very end of the play, we get this sort of one of the final monologues from Vladimir. He's looking at the sleeping Estragon. And this is sort of his final reflection on uh, his experience, on his condition. He says, quote, Was I sleeping while the others suffered? Am I sleeping now? Tomorrow when I wake, or think I do, what shall I say of today? That with Estragon my friend at this place, until the fall of night I waited for Godot? That Pozo passed with his carrier, and that he spoke to us? Probably. But in all that, what truth will there be? He'll know nothing. He'll tell me about the blows he received, and I'll give him a carrot. Astride of a grave and a difficult birth, down in the hole, lingeringly, the gravedigger puts on the forceps. We have time to grow old. The air is full of our cries. But habit is a great deadener. At me too, someone is looking. Of me too, someone is saying, he is sleeping. He knows nothing. Let him sleep on. I can't go on. What have I said? End quote. And again, in sort of that final summing up reflection, we have this image of the infinite regress. You know, the sleeper on the stage being observed from the outside and the observer recognizing that he too is a sleeper. He too is a, a hallucinating. He too is living in an unreality and being observed from the outside in this kind of infinite regress of observer and sleeper, observer and sleeper. And that dream is just the dream of waiting, the dream of dissatisfaction, the dream of never being at rest or fully at home, but always anticipating the next pipe or the next good experience or the arrival of Godot, which surely can never come.